All right. Hey, good morning. I'm glad to be here. I'm f- really excited about the message here this morning, so you might see some excitability in me. Sometimes you just come across a passage that you just know is an absolute home run, and that's where we are this morning in Luke chapter 10 as we begin a new sermon series preparing us for Easter called Very Human, Fully Divine, where we're going to look at the humanity of Christ and look through the the human eyes of Jesus, but see the divine love and mercy and justice of Jesus come out through his skin, through his words. He's going to defend some people. He's going to rebuke some people. He's just going to absolutely love some people in this series that you're going to see. And we're asking God to help us see through the eyes of Christ and express the love of God to all of humankind through us as we grow in the teachings that God has for us here this morning. Chris Grupp and I just simply have to say, God bless you. I hope that God raises up five more Chris Gruppins in this church with hearts for children's ministry. When somebody already preaches the sermon for you before you get up here, you know, you know you're going to land on your feet here today. And you're going to be able to see this same kind of love and same kind of compassion in the passage um, that we're in. If you haven't noticed, I'm wearing uh, a t-shirt today and I look very casual because that's what the students and youth workers and uh, Pastor Cameron will look like when they all come in uh, here for the 11 o'clock hour. And um, I'm I think I remember Elder Mark saying it correctly. You're going to be here at 11 o'clock to celebrate them, right? I think that's what I heard him say. You're going to be here because we're all going in the same direction. We're all about knowing Christ and making him known. All right, And I don't want to give away anything. I want the students to testify and Pastor Cameron to share with you. But I do know some stuff that went on there. I was there yesterday afternoon celebrating my daughter and her love for Christ and the way that she served others there. It was just beautiful. I came home so full of pride as a father, just having observed my daughter, who was like, Dad, stay away. I did. I stayed away. I hung with these people over here. Um, but uh, I still observed her from afar and watched her minister. I was so proud of her, but I know some stuff that they're going to share. I'll just give you a hint. Jesus was there, okay? He was there, and he was working, all right? Because that's what we're looking for, and that's what we're asking for, to know Christ and to make him known. And you know what we're going to do now? We're all going to stand up, and we're going to uh, read the Word of God together Uh, establishing this new tradition that we have out of reverence and respect for God's living word. Let's rise. Let's all rise. Thank you. Yep. And see, I look a lot like you today, don't I? I look like you. Yeah. Somebody somebody stopped me at 915 and said, where's your tie? And I said, it's right here. Here it is. Okay? So, no sweat. I look a lot like you, and I look a lot like the students when they come in this morning wearing their t-shirts as well. All right, let's read the text aloud. And behold, verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? This is where he pauses and goes, oh, oh, goodness, you know, Luke having just 20 some chapters. Based upon this question alone, Jesus could have added 50 more chapters and seven days of questioning about the law. But the lawyer says in verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, 18, to sum it all up. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this 
and you will live. Oh, but the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. We're going to examine that word in a little while. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, meaning the lawyer, he said, the one who showed him mercy, loving kindness. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your true and your living word. It's already alive. It's already full of divine revelation to us. But just coming and reading it is not enough. Coming and studying it is not enough. We need your Holy Spirit to receive it so that it would illuminate to us your great truth and your character to us. So, Father, speak to us through your living word now as we surrender our ears, our hearts, all of ourselves to the working of your Holy Spirit and the washing of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, we're spending a whole lot more time today, it seems, deciding who our enemy is than deciding who our neighbor is, right? It would appear through a lot of the political uh, communication that we receive, through the media, through social media, that we have a pretty good idea who our enemies are and what we want to happen to our enemies, rather than an idea of who our neighbor is and what we want to happen to our neighbors. We're in a culture now that is so polarized, it's, you punch me, I'm going to punch you back harder. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you worse. And here we come across a text looking at the very human yet fully divine Jesus. God with skin on and we ask ourselves, is this the way Jesus looks at the world? Is this the way Jesus is going to talk about neighbors and talk about enemies? We need to ask ourselves important questions here. This morning. You know, a man once popped a genie out of a bottle, and the genie said, Hey, look, I'm tired of all this narcissistic wishing. So here's what's going to happen I'm still going to grant you three wishes, all right? But for every wish that I grant, I'm going to doubly grant that wish to your worst enemy. And so the man thought about it for a second. He said, Okay, fine. He said, fine. So his first wish was for a billion dollars, knowing that his worst enemy would get two billion dollars. Then the man wished for a mansion on the coast of California, and the genie granted that wish of a beautiful mansion, 
But then he gave that worst enemy a mansion twice that size, towering up above that lower mansion. And finally, the man said, well, for my third wish, I wish that I would only be beaten half to death. In this story, Jesus tells us about who is our neighbor and what is eternal life really about. What is he getting at? It's not about getting eternal life the way the lawyer asks the question. This lawyer who truly wasn't very interested at all in eternal life. He was interested in debate. It says looking to test Jesus. He was just looking to play around with Jesus' answers and come up with some kind of evidence that you're the enemy. So Jesus is going to do some incredible discipling in this story. And he's actually just going to take the question where it starts and go from there. Alistair Begg once uh, tells the, told the story of how Martin Luther was asked the question by someone who was hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the theology of one true God. And so Martin Luther was asked by this individual, so what was God busy doing before he created the world? And they, Alistair Begg answers that this was the response of Martin Luther. He was busy creating hell for people like you that ask stupid questions like that. This lawyer isn't really interested in eternal life. He's interested in testing Jesus. Jesus could have taken this lawyer to task, and he could have walked him through 613 laws of the Old Testament. I could have, if that is what Jesus had done, it had all been recorded by the Holy Spirit through the writing of men. I could be saying, turn to Luke chapter 77 right now. And it would have said at the end of all that discourse, it would have said probably like, and 12 days later, the lawyer finally knew what it meant to love God and to love his neighbor. It would have also said the neighbor also finally knew that it was impossible to love God and love his neighbor without eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus could have done that. He could have pointed out everything that the man precisely was and was not doing to get at that definition of who is my neighbor. The lawyer would have narrowly defined neighbor as the leadership of the Jewish system at that time did, as a relative, as someone who deserves good treatment from me. One of my peeps is my neighbor, someone who would appreciate me blessing them and I could be blessed in return. And Jesus will not let that definition stick. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Who here wants to... Wants to love a tax collector. Anybody invite the IRS over for dinner this month? But probably more importantly for our hearts here this morning, here's a better question. Who doesn't want to be loved? Who doesn't want to be loved fully and completely? Who doesn't want to be a neighbor according to Jesus' definition? Anyone? So Jesus is going to really bring us 
some contrasts here. He's gonna, there, there are characters that are in this story that we're going to have to investigate. And then there are questions that are going to grip our hearts. And they're good questions. Good questions because God wants us to see through the eyes of Jesus. If we really want to know Christ and we want to make him known, then we've got to look through the eyes of Jesus at this world. And so Jesus is going to constrain us to do that. So let's step into the text here for a moment. And forgive me if I don't give you all of the information here because there's so much. And this is just background, but Levites, first of all, first of all, the difference between a priest and a Levite, when you look at the two characters, the priest is one that is assigned sacrificial ministry. A priest was actually performing or sta- standing in the place of God, performing those sacrifices, doing those things that would have offered forgiveness and atonement to the people of Israel. He would have been uh, establishing those requirements for cleansing and preparation to meet with God to, and then to be cleansed by God and for. In other words, the priest really held on to forgiveness and salvation from the very true, one, one very true God. A Levite was sort of like um, a priest helper or, or uh, a, a mini priest. He was, he was uh, responsible for all, all those administrative things that came along with being a priest. And maybe he gets exalted to the position of priest at some point, but as a Levite, he's still a part of that priestly family and still would have many of those pre- priestly privileges and obligations in honoring God. And he also would hold the keys to the kingdom. He also would at least have the keys to the cabinet that held the keys to the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus talks about a priest and he talks about a Levite, Levites, they were the gatekeepers to forgiveness and eternal life. They were entitled to exceptions. If you are a priest or a Levite and you are traveling that road, especially to Jerusalem, maybe for one of the intended feasts or for some other type of festival, and you had to pull off on the side of the road, if there was Jewish company anywhere that you knew, they would take you in and they would treat you very well because they knew that you were in the service of the Lord. you got to honor this guy. But they wouldn't want to become unclean on the way to Jerusalem. So there's a built-in excuse that comes with the story. There's privilege that leads to perception, that leads to an excuse that can be used. Because when you hear this, when you're, when you're listening the first time and his disciples are standing around while Jesus is having this dialogue with this lawyer, and they're listening to this for the first time, they're thinking, okay, there's a guy that's beat up, I mean, half beaten to death within an inch of his life, and he's on the, he's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the priest and a Levite are heading that way. You're filled with hope. Because these are the people that should be showing you who God is and how to get to God. These are the people that should show you the heart of God and how merciful God is. There should have been great hope in the hearer that, wait, a priest and a Levite are going to walk by. By executing mercy over and over again through animal sacrifice, you would have, th- you would have thought these guys are the best suited to offer mercy Right here. Remember the question that Jesus asked? Who was the neighbor? And the lawyer said, the one who showed what? Mercy. So those hearing this story would have thought the, the Levites and the priests, hey, they're the good guys. The good guys are coming. And their hopes are dashed. For the priest and the Levite to have ignored this great need, they would have had to believe at least one lie, probably several 
But the, the major lie is this, is that there's something more important to God right now than saving this life. There's something, getting to Jerusalem on time, making sure that I'm not unclean. Can you imagine if you're a priest, you're about to go and offer sacrifices, and yet you show up unclean, and you miss the very week where your service is intended? But probably more lies, like, oh, this is going to make me unclean. The fear of stopping and becoming the prey of the same thieves. Other lies probably would have to be believed, but at least one very important lie. God doesn't need me right now. Let me characterize that correctly. God doesn't want to use me right now. Dr. John Nolan in his commentary said this, being a priest should have made this man a very good candidate for coming to the aid of the needy man. But this expectation was not borne out in the priest's practice. In the story, the role of the priest is to raise the hopes of the hearers and then dash them immediately. The needy man's situation is now measurably worsened. If the good guys won't help, who's going to help? Nobody else might come to the scene soon enough. And the first two pass, and the hearer is left wondering who's going to help. So there's some background there on the Levites and the way that they're used in the story. People who should have been gatekeepers to forgiveness, eternal life, and to mercy. They close those gates. And then the third character is a Samaritan. And you say, who is a Samaritan? And why is he distinguished from this Levite and priest? Well, it's a great, great, great contest. There couldn't have been a greater chasm. You could have called him barbarian. You could have called him a Greek. You could have called him a Scythian. You could have called him any. But, but Jesus calls out a Samaritan, one of the most despised and hated groups of people by the faithful Jews that lived in Israel. Why? All right, well, here's the story. Samaritans, they would have been viewed as traitorous, morally and spiritually corrupt bad guys. That's the way they would have been viewed by these Jewish hearers of the story. Samaritans were considered half-breeds that had distorted the true faith of Jerusalem and true loyalty to God by inbreeding with other people north of Judah, where they resettled after the Babylonian conquer in the 6th century B.C. So what happens is Babylonians come in and they kick out anybody who has position, who has status, so that that people group can't rise up again and be a force against them. And so a lot of Jews got scattered and some of them headed north into Samaria, which is right above the the region of of, of Judah or northern Judea. And, And right there is where Jerusalem is and where Jericho are. And just 20 miles north begins this region of Samaria that you can see in first century Israel. And Samaria was so despised because they had already, already prostituted themselves by joining themselves and inbreeding with other people groups, non-Jews. Not only that, but when Alexander the Great comes through there and he conquers, and the Greeks conquer in, in the 4th century B.C. and on into the 3rd century, they decide since when Ezra came back in the Persian Empire in, in the... In the, in the 
last part of the 6th century allowed Ezra and Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and then the rebuilding of the temple, those Samaritans that were living up there that had only been up there for about 30 or 40 years in that northern region, they offered to come and help build the temple. And the faithful Jews said, no, no way do you half-breeds come and help us with the true temple. So you know what happened? They decide, along with the Greeks, the best thing to do is to build our own temple right here at Mount Gerizim, near Shechem. And why is Shechem so important? Shechem is the very place where God says to Abram, this land I will give you. How bizarre, how ironic that Samaritans are living in a very place that God calls him his own, where God is going to have a people of his own. And so they build this temple there at Mount Gerizim. But you know what happens? After the exile, a, a strident monotheism and a strident zealous followership of Judaism rises up. And this Hasmonean group, led by John Hyrcanus, comes in about 250 B.C. and absolutely levels Mount Gerizim, attacks the Samaritans, and even though the Samaritans got some help from others, they still could not hold off this attack, and they level the temple at Gerizim to the ground. And so what's gone on is the Jews and the Samaritans, they've got some serious history. You punch me, I'll punch you harder. You hurt me, I'll hurt you worse. They're not neighbors. And here is some more of this incredible irony when you look at the contrast between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. Ultimately, they are still relatives. They have common ancestors. And who is their most common ancestor? Abram. They're children of the faith of Israel and their worst enemies. And so when Ezra begins rebuilding temples, Samaritans are held off. They're rejected and told that they don't have the true faith of Israel. And so this Samaritan is the least likely candidate of all. His character would not be viewed as having the ability to show mercy and love to this individual. Now let's talk just for a minute about the Jericho Road itself because sometimes when we hear that the priest and the Levite that passed on the other side, we think they went to the sidewalk on the other side or they, they chose a different highway. Well, when it comes to the Jericho Road, Siri can't find you the best possible route. There's one route. Do you see that right there? Do you see that serpentine curving road right there? Now, of course, that is a recent picture. Uh, that's a 21st century picture there. But you can also see this huge canyon right here and basically you're looking practically looking north to south this way at this road and so that's the kilt canyon or the wadi kilt right there that deep deep canyon that goes all, all the way up to Jerusalem because the way the weather works there it literally creates these these massive slopes and hillsides and canyons where water maybe presses through only for days and then it dries out again and then the next season it comes again and does this and so it accentuates and it accentuates that and so if these priests and these Levites were to pass on the other side of the road to truly get out of the way they would have had to gone down into a canyon or up over rocks or over a cliff 
cliff's edge to get around this guy. And of course the thieves and the robbers would have chosen a place that was most perilous, where there was no escape. They wouldn't have chosen in an open territory where help could have come running, but they would have chosen one of the most perilous places. And so there are places on the Jericho Road where the road is four feet or less wide. Four feet or less wide. All right, let's go to the next uh, photo. All right, so you can see also the Jericho Road uh, in many places is a very steep incline. You would have been fatigued. Your legs would be like noodles. You would have to stop and rest in certain places because Jericho um, is 800 feet below sea level. In fact, when Heather and I were there in January, uh, there's, you know, tourist signs everywhere and they want you to, hey, come ride camel, Fidala, you know, and stuff like that. And right there in Jericho where we stopped for just a tiny little dessert treat, um, with our group, um, there was a sign that said, the lowest place on earth, right here in Jericho, 800 feet below sea level. But how, what's the altitude of Jerusalem? 2,500 feet above sea level. It's a 3,300 foot, 17 to 21 mile climb all the way to Jerusalem from Jericho, depending upon which Jericho that you decide. It would have been at least eight or nine hours, 3,300 feet, plus carrying all of your material. When we studied John 2, and I told you, when you made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you had to be prepared for three weeks. So you're loading up your camel, your mule, or wait, maybe you don't own a camel or a mule, which means you're trying to hook up with some other people and share their camels and mules to get there. But it's a long time. And so if there's an accident or there's a hardship that befalls you, suddenly you've got to figure out what you're going to do overnight because you can't make it in daylight. That's the Jericho Road. Let's look at the next um, photo there. You can see I, I showed you the Wadi Kilt. It's just barely to the north of the road there. And you can even see up there that they have gone looking for a good Samaritan inn uh, that they think... Uh, became a part of that journey after that. Um, and, of course, there might have been actual people uh, that benefited from being close to that road where you could come off to the side because you maybe couldn't make it in a day or maybe you were traveling from a, from a further distance to get there. All right? And so, um, so it shows you how treacherous and how hilly and how rough it is. We're not talking about a four-lane highway. Siri cannot find you a way around this. That's the road that you're taking to Jerusalem. That's the road that you're taking to Jericho. All right? And finally this. Well, look, go ahead and look at the, at the fact chart there. Look at that. 853 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem... Uh, at its lowest point, 2,133 feet. At its highest point, 2,900 feet. So you average that out to 2,500 feet. All right? Uh, anybody make a 23-mile, uh, 3,300-foot uh, 3, uphill journey in eight or nine hours with maybe several hundred pounds worth of materials with you uh, recently in a day? Anybody here? Yeah. That's how difficult that journey was. Right? Now, we also... Don't want to forget the victim. What do we know about the victim? What do we know? Nothing. We know nothing. A man is on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe he had gone as a worshiper. Maybe he was ready to go back to his family and go, oh, it was great. Maybe he's going to tell stories to us. Who knows? He's nobody. 
And it's exactly the way Jesus wants it to be in the story because nobody is nobody to Jesus. Nobody is nobody to Jesus. Jesus wants it to be an anybody. He will not permit that lawyer to assign a certain value to this guy by giving any type of description where the, where the lawyer can go, now wait a second, was he a faithful Jew or a not so faithful Jew? Was he this? You know, what level of society, what strat? Nothing. Because it's life that matters to God. And Jesus puts his brand and his stamp on that when he declares in John 3.16, you know it, church, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus will only allow the story to be told that will describe his love for the world, and his love for the world will describe and define what our neighbor is. Now, the next thing that happens in this story, have you, have, is your heart gripped yet? Wow, you just entered the story. Now let Jesus mess with you a little bit. Let's let God really bother us here this morning. Look at the contrasts that capture our hearts. The righteous indignation of the disciples versus the compassion and the sacrifice of the Samaritan. Now, in the story, you see the compassion and the sacrifice of the Samaritan, but the disciples don't get, get any insertions, so you, you, you don't want to just assume what's going on in their heads. Well, if you were to back up one chapter into Luke chapter 9, here's what happens. First of all, if they were raised as faithful Jews, they were Jews from Galilee, which actually is north of Samaria to the northeast. So if you're looking at Samaria here, Galilee is up here around the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis here. And there's this region on the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, called Perea. And faithful Jews, just to avoid Samaria, if, if, they, if they wanted to go to Jerusalem on a straight line, they'd have gone straight from Galilee down here to, Jeru to Jerusalem below Samaria into the region of, 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 of Judah. But instead, they would go all the way out and around through Perea because you just don't travel through the hood. You just, you just don't go there. And so priests and Levites were known to go way out of their way. Faithful Jews were known to go way out of their way into Perea and back across the Jordan and back and literally go up to Jerusalem, sometimes even from the south, even though uh, they were coming from the north. And so that's what's going on in the minds of these disciples. They would have historically been told about Samaritans. They would have known the history that Jews had with the Samaritans. But even more, if you look back one chapter in Luke chapter 9, here's what happens. Jesus, it says there that he set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, at the very moment, at the very moment that Jesus is ready to express the love of God in the most infinite and heart gripping way by giving his life on a cross as an innocent man dying for you and me because the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, is that God so loved you and me that he calls you and me his neighbor. And how does Jesus see you and me? He sees us as beaten up on the ground, lying ready for death, going to die unless we're rescued from our sin. And Jesus gave his life on a cross, taking all of our sin upon himself to satisfy the holy wrath of God, to take that sin away and to give us eternal life with God. And so, so that's what's happening right there. Jesus is saying, I, it says there, Jesus set his faith to journey to Jerusalem. He's ready to go to that place that is going to be a place of death and sacrifice. The greatest historical event of mercy, that's where Jesus is heading. And so then it says he takes them through a Samaritan village. 
Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, come on. You're supposed to go around your elbow to get to your belly button on this one. You're not supposed to go through a Samaritan village. Jesus takes them through a Samaritan village. And of course, all the prejudice, all the hatred, all the enemy, we're all about enemies, not about neighbors, rises up, and the village does not receive him or his disciples. They reject him. Here's a guy on his way to Jerusalem, on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You're supposed to show hospitality on the way if you're a good Jew. And the Samaritans say, get out. And do you know what the disciples ask Jesus? You know what they ask? They say, you want us to call down fire right now and just consume these guys? That's what the disciples ask. They're so ready to write off these enemies. You want God to torch them right now? Let's just torch them. You want, you want to know what Jesus responds? He gives one response, and the story ends. There's nothing left. It just says they go on to another village. Jesus' response is, is no. The Son of Man, by the way, which is a title of, a, of the holy judge, Son of Man, reaching all the way back to Daniel chapter 9, talking about an eschatology, the consummation of all things, moving toward God's eternal judgment of man. How great is it that we have escaped the judgment of God, that we are not appointed for God's wrath, says the book of Thessalonians. He says, the Son of Man, that great and holy judge who is Jesus as well, the Son who is going to be filled with mercy, this Messiah, this suffering servant, who is also the great and holy judge. He says, the Son of Man hasn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. End of story. Moving on. What a contrast of the disciples' righteous indignation and the compassion and the sacrifice of this Samaritan. Just one chapter before we witnessed this. And so, Ken Sand, which is so e it's just so easy for us to write off enemies today, just, just torch them. I, I read this week someone who says, as soon as somebody come, becomes my enemy, I just write them off. I don't listen to them anymore. I don't, I don't follow them on Facebook anymore. I just erase the memory of them altogether. And Ken Sand in his book, The Peacemaker, a fantastic book about bringing the gospel into conflict, it, uh, he says this in a story about a fence dispute that he had with a neighbor lady that lived behind him. It was about 18 inches it was about 18 inches. It wasn't about 3,300 feet. It wasn't about 23 miles. It was about 18 inches. 18 inches of fence. And he appealed to her. He wrote to her. He did everything he could to try to get these 18 inches of fence settled and not go to court. But she wanted a court. She wanted a judge. His heart was to do what the Bible says, to be quick to settle out of court and to honor God by showing that love and mercy can settle conflict. But she wouldn't budge. And then, even as he's praying that God would somehow solve this problem and it would not go to court, a terrible storm comes and knocks out all of the power in their neighborhood. And so Ken, in thinking about it, after he made sure that his family had a little bit of heat and was able to light up their kitchen to prepare meals. Ken, after starting up his generation generator, he goes into the garage and finds the backup generator. And he thinks of that neighbor, that lady that lives alone, alone without power. So he starts up the backup generator. He gets 
all of the extension cords that he can find, and he links them all together all the way to this lady's back door, and then he knocks on the door. And she opens the door, surprised to see him, and he said, hey, realize that you're without electricity and maybe you'd like to be able to fix a hot cup of tea or prepare some food or just have some light in your kitchen. So uh, I uh, took the liberty of going over the fence to bring you the electricity that you need. She thanks him and he returns home and continues to pray for her. And only days later she calls and she says, hey, let's not go to court. Let's settle this. The disciples wanted to write off an entire village. I'm telling you, sometimes we are ready to write off people that are just across the street. They're in your photo album. They're called relatives. Jesus says, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And now, let's look again at the contrast between the Levites and the Samaritan. The highly favored and the highly condemned. Right? Highly favored, highly condemned. Samaritans were considered locked out. And the cost of discipleship versus the cost of helping one man. You know what Jesus also does one chapter earlier? He talks about the cost of discipleship in, in, in multiple ways. First of all, he announces that he's going into Jerusalem to die. Twice he lets them know that he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. If that doesn't grip your heart, then he says, hey, look, this is what discipleship looks like. If anybody wants to come after me, he's got to take up his cross and follow me. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And whoever finds his life for his own sake will lose it. He's saying, you've got to count your life nothing when you're looking at your neighbor. Luke chapter 9, he says this. Oh, I already said that. Can you put it up there on the screen? Sorry about that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus basically says that anyone who looks back after putting their hand to the plow... So anybody who comes up with excuses or says, oh, maybe I would rather do it the other way, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a very forward kingdom. It's looking through the eyes of Jesus' kingdom. It's having the heart of God kingdom. And this Samaritan takes responsibility for a life. This Samaritan shows the character of a true disciple. Some might just leave the guy some water Go for help. Dial 911. But beginning in verse 33, we see seven things that this Samaritan is willing to do. It says, The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Oh, the word is this really long, wonderful Greek word. It's called, it's splanch uh, nizome. Splanch nizome. It comes from splanch. It means to have your heart broken, to literally just have Action and emotion come straight from your heart. The very first act that we see is that his heart was drawn to the individual. What does God see when he sees you? What's the first action of God in his relation to you each and every day? He loves you. He wants you. His heart splanches for you. 
Jesus uses this guy as an example because he wants everyone to hear what the heart of God really is like. And what's the, what's the next thing? After his heart bursts with compassion for him, affection for another, it says he went to him. He narrowed the distance. He covered the gap. Even if it was 18 inches, he went to him. And even doing so, he brought grave danger upon himself. Why? Because the stop right there, if that was the attack mark right there, the thieves might still be in hiding, waiting for the next foolish victim to stop and to help. And what did he have? He had all of his stuff. He had all of his gear there. And so thirdly, he bound his wounds. He takes his own clothing, his cloth, his oil, his wine, both for balm for healing and wine for infection, and helps the man that way by binding up his wounds. Then he puts him on his own animal. What does that mean? Another slowdown. Another rest stop. Man, This guy is killing the travel average, right, guys? You wanted to average 60 miles an hour on your trip to Florida for spring break. And everybody's got to stop and go potty. He puts him on his own animal, and now the trip is further delayed, so much that he decides to stop at an inn. So he brings him to safe recovery at this end. Not only safe recovery, he takes the additional time. It says that he stayed over, and then when it was time for him to leave, after he had taken the time to see that this man was healing, he leaves him in very good shape. He takes two days' wages worth of money and leaves it with that innkeeper and says, take care of him in any way he needs to be taken care of. And on my way back, if I owe you more, I'll pay that as well. He ensured true healing. Let me tell you something. Whether you are a believer today or you're about ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior or you're hearing this for the first time, God can bring you to complete healing. Because one of the things that you have already said in your head is, I've been that guy on the road before. I've been bloodied. I've been beaten. I've been hurt. I feel like I've got more enemies than I've got neighbors. And I want to tell you that Jesus wants to bring complete and total healing to you. That's the heart of God. He wants to restore us to himself. So much that when we look at our victory and our hope and the resurrection that is coming, Paul says, I can't wait for the perishable to be exchanged with the imperishable, the corrupt with the incorrupt, the mortal with the immortal. God is going to completely restore us. And there is great hope that's in the heart of God. There's great hope in the heart of God. So the story leads to questions of our heart. Come on up, Pastor, and get ready to lead us in in closing worship. And then I remind you again that we're going to celebrate these students uh, here this morning. I've already nudged a couple of people and said, hey, look, let's give these guys great applause and honor them because these are people that went and met with Jesus. And maybe they have been gripped by the heart of God this weekend, and you're going to hear about that in just about 20 minutes. But the story leads to questions of the heart. And the first one is, which character am I? Am I this guy? Am I that guy? Or have I been all of them? Yeah. Have I been all of them? Sometimes I've said, no, my privilege prevents me from helping. No, I've got a good excuse. My hand's on the plow, but no, I'm looking back. 
our discipleship has been challenged by the heart of Jesus here this morning to ask ourselves, which character am I? And I've told you, hey, if you're that bloody, beaten down guy, hey, Jesus wants to help you, and he wants to help you right now. If you're listening on the podcast, what you really need is you need eternal life because Jesus is not talking about how you get eternal life. He's talking about how eternal life can get you and change you so that you're living eternal life. Jesus, who is eternal life, gives eternal life that his Father granted him the ability to give so that we would have eternal life, a present reality right here and now, so that we could live eternal life. So there's a huge question for our heart too, and that is this. What do I now see that I didn't see before? Think of all the hearers. Think of the lawyer. Think of the disciples. Everybody who picked up on that. Everybody who's ever read this passage before and has had the help of the Holy Spirit to get it. What do I see that I didn't see before? Do you, don't you see something that you didn't see before? And God intends that for your heart? Oh, this is how? I'm a neighbor. This is what it means to love God and to love my neighbor because eternal life is this. John 17, verse 1 through 3 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all, you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? Eternal life is knowing true God and knowing Jesus, his Son. Eternal life is agreeing with the heart of God, because if you know Jesus, you agree with the heart of God. Eternal life is loving God and loving my neighbor, and it's going to take all of me. Eternal life is seeing with the eyes of Jesus, that very human but fully divine one, who just through a story said, hey, be a neighbor to anybody. Anybody. Eternal life isn't a promise of the future, or even a position of privileged favor. It's a condition of right now. It's a present reality that God is calling you and I to live. How in the world can we fill up this mission to know Christ and to make him known unless we've got the heart of God? Let's ask for it right now. Let's pray right now as we enter into worship. Do business with God. Because 1 John 3, 14 says this, and we know that we've passed from life to death because we what? We love the brothers. That's how you know that you have eternal life because it's just there and it's working. Take your time with God as we respond. And again, if you need to, I'll pray with you if you want to pray. I'll wait right down here as I worship. You can interrupt my worship because that would be great worship to just pray, pray with you, to pray for your heart. If you want to ask God for that new definition of neighbor that Jesus gives you, man, I ask you welcome that. If you see something that you've never seen before, praise God with that revelation that came from Scripture to you today. But oh, come on, come on. Let's respond to God here this morning, all right?